0: listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local news, music, and culture. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey. Just a friendly reminder before we get started that Jackson Unpacked is now available as a podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Please subscribe today and help support Jackson's only nonprofit newsroom. Coming up on today's show, Jackson Hole News & Guide reporter Mike Cosmoral discusses his recent reporting on the hazing of a well-known grizzly bear on Togedee Pass.
1: They're hitting her and they're aiming for her rump, her butt, uh, with uh, rubber bullets. um, and, And it hurts.
0: Plus, we'll hear how a Jackson botanist is using citizen science to track the impact of climate change on local plant species
2: onset of flowering for spring wildflowers is on average 17 days earlier now than it was
3: in the 1970s.
0: But first we turn to a look at the future of nuclear energy in the Cowboy State.
3: A first of its kind nuclear power plant is coming to Wyoming. That was the news announced earlier this month by Governor Mark Gordon and the leaders of two major companies that are partnering on the project. KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports on how energy experts are working to destigmatize nuclear power in the modern era and what the Natrium Demonstration Project might mean for the state.
0: The announcement that Wyoming has been chosen as the site for an advanced nuclear power plant was made with pretty striking language. Governor Gordon and U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm both spoke during the press conference on June 2nd.
4: Today's announcement really truly is game changing and monumental for Wyoming. This natrium reactor shows that the future of nuclear energy is is here.
0: Then the co founder and chairman of TerraPower, the company developing the new reactor, gave remarks in a pre recorded video address. You might recognize his name because it's Bill Gates of Microsoft.
4: I know that innovation is the key to maintaining leadership. Natrium can play a role in helping Wyoming be a leader in energy, and it's great uh, for the state and great for the country.
0: Despite Gates's celebrity genius endorsement, the potential of nuclear power is still overshadowed by major disasters of the past, like Chernobyl in present-day Ukraine and Fukushima in Japan just 10 years ago. Dr. George Griffith is one of the researchers who's dedicated his career to trying to overcome the legacy of those events. Griffith is the small modular reactor lead at Idaho National Laboratory, one of the country's premier nuclear science and technology labs. KHL spoke to him about the stereotypes surrounding nuclear energy on an ironically shaky Zoom call.
3: I think from a, the technology point of view, it's almost like, you know, you imagine your cars from the 50s, simple Mechanics had to work on them. They were almost, you know, almost entirely mechanical compared to a car now with airbags, and anti-lock brakes. Much more sophisticated design.
0: Griffiths says the same kind of evolution has happened with nuclear power plants. Engineers have learned from the mistakes of the past, and reactors today offer one of the lowest consequence power sources available. That means they're not just much safer, but nuclear also avoids some of the drawbacks of other energy sources, like the carbon emissions of fossil fuels and environmental dependence of wind and solar. The
3: sun goes down on a new plant, it doesn't care. Wind stops blowing, it doesn't
0: care. Terra Power's natrium reactor will provide 345 megawatts of baseload power by the time it gets up and running by the late 2020s. That power is meant to supplement a growing mix of renewable energy on the power grid. Gary Hogeveen is president and CEO of Rocky Mountain Power, which will be hosting the reactor at one of its four retiring coal plants in Wyoming.
5: This technology can allow us to provide carbon-free electricity 24-7, 365, and that is amazing. There's no other word for it. It's amazing.
0: Hogeveen and his counterpart at TerraPower say the new plant will create up to thousands of highly skilled construction jobs and then hundreds more well-paying positions to operate it. That's good news for coal communities that have been hard hit by the industry's demise. Griffith also says if the Natrium reactor proves to be successful, he thinks it will kick off a domino effect.
3: The first company that succeeds in any real way will open the floodgates for more successes down the road. Because people go, okay, we can do that. This is a good financial investment.
0: Still, the decades-long debate over the merit of nuclear power continues, and not all Wyoming stakeholders are on board. Chair of the Powder River Basin Resource Council, Marcia Westcott, described the Natrium technology as, quote, experimental and unproven in a written statement after the announcement. She also pointed out that the design still needs to be licensed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and raised concerns about the safety of storing nuclear waste on site.
4: I think there's a lot of misconception around nuclear waste. You know, it's easy to, uh, to portray the big uh, 50-gallon drum with green ooze coming out of it, and that's not what it is.
0: Travis Detai is executive director of the Wyoming Mining Association, a statewide group that represents coal, uranium, bentonite, trona, and rare earths companies.
4: Uh, nuclear fuel are basically fuel rods made of small pellets, and they're stored in, in uh, state-of-the-art casks on site. And it is just management like any other solid and hazardous waste like we do all around the country.
0: Griffith agrees that storing spent fuel in hardened structures presents a low risk. But he also says researchers can still do more work on better long-term solutions. In the meantime, DTI is hoping that the new plant may help revive Wyoming's near-dormant uranium mining industry, the production of which fell to its lowest level on record last year. You mentioned that you've been talking to TerraPower. Have they made any commitments to using domestic uranium?
4: The answer to that is no, there have been no commitments yet because they are focused 100% on getting this project up and running. And uh, once it is, and if it's proven successful, then what they have uh, conveyed to domestic uranium producers is to get ready for those, that, that second and third step of more reactors coming online.
0: Of course, this very first reactor still has plenty of hurdles to overcome, starting with convincing the state legislature's Joint Minerals, Business, and Economic Development Committee on permitting issues. The committee is scheduled to take public comments and to hear from Rocky Mountain Power about the project this Friday, June 25th. Kyle Mackey, k 2 News. Bear 863, also known as Felicia, lives on Togedee Pass with her two cubs, and she's gotten habituated to living near the highway. That's been causing problems for federal agencies, who are concerned about the safety of drivers, tourists, and bears on the pass. KHOL's Will Walkie talked with journalist Mike Koshmerl of the Jackson Hole News and Guide about his recent reporting on human bear conflicts in Jackson Hole, which are growing more frequent as the Valley's popularity continues to explode.
3: Mike Koshmerl reports on environmental issues for the Jackson Hole News and Guide and has been following this story. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining KHOL. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks, Will. Let's start with just some background um, Who is Grizzly 863, also known as Felicia? What's currently going on with her?
1: Yeah. So I'd say the entire time Grizzly 863 or Felicia has lived along the highway, there's been concern from, it's it's mainly been the Wyoming Game and Fish Department that's dealt with it. It takes a lot of work to have a grizzly bear that is always along a road not everyone knows how to behave around grizzly bears a lot of people uh you know have never i've i've been on Togi pass and seen people who have never seen a grizzly bear before and they get super excited and you know they probably don't understand the the danger inherent of approaching an animal like that um and and you know there's also issues with photographers getting too close of course you know they're trying to get close to get a good shot and and you know there can be mob mentality deal that happens where someone gets closer and someone gets closer and someone gets closer and everything's fine, and then all of a sudden you know you have a a, a dangerous situation. Um, they uh, are are trying to make sure that there's like three plus people up there at all times, like sun up to sunrise, which right around the solstice is you know eighteen hours a day almost. Um, and uh, whenever people are trying to stop. They try to kind of keep them going. And whenever Grizzly 863 comes near the road, they haze her. Can you explain what
3: hazing is and specifically some of the methods that folks are using to try to haze
1: her away from the road? Sure. So in the past, Felicia uh, has been hazed primarily by Game and Fish, and they've used uh, cracker shells, which uh, it's just like a small explosive device that Interestingly enough, I heard that she basically got used to it and stopped caring about the cracker shells. And so this last uh, week where they've been uh, hazing her, what they're using to try to actually uh, instill kind of a fear into her of people and of cars stopping is uh, they're they're hitting her and they're aiming for her rump, her butt, uh, with uh, rubber bullets um, and and it hurts. And the Cubs, uh, you know, presumably the Cubs will learn Well, as mom is, you know, running in panic and they're following her. Uh, hopefully the Cubs uh, are instilled with a similar fear of, of people and, and vehicles, because uh, apart from the danger uh, and kind of chaos uh, from people, Togity Pass is actually also really dangerous for grizzly bears. I think in the time that I, in the decade about that I've been in the valley, uh, there's been three grizzlies hit and killed on that road. I've seen I've seen really brutal photos of cubs that were just smeared into the pavement. I mean, yeah, I think that there's almost a consensus out there that you know it, it's for the best that she is not as habituated while she has a home range like she does because she is living alongside a highway. the speed limit up on the top of that pass is 55 miles an hour but uh, anyone who drives over can see a lot of people are going a lot faster than that, and there's commercial truck traffic, and there's streams of tourists, and it's just tough. Does
3: Game and Fish and the authorities up there, do they really have another choice right now in terms of what to do?
1: There are scenes where in you know Grand Teton National Park, there are 500 people looking at Grizzly Bear 399, and can you imagine how that would go if there was essentially nobody there? And so that's the situation. There's the potential for that except they don't have staff to deal with it. So in my opinion, um, you know, it would have been extraordinarily risky and probably would have been an inevitable that something bad would happen either to the bear or to somebody. Uh, I've seen a lot of kind of conjecture online that this was like a ploy. They're basically trying to find an excuse to kill felicia and they did use the word euthanize as a possibility in a press release that the u.s fish and wildlife sent out but this was a plan that was actually in place last year in the event that she would have come out with cubs they would have done this last year i mean they knew they were doing this for a long time they they did not consider the situation up there sustainable there have been a lot of Early season encounters with bears
3: in Yellowstone, Grand Teton, and also with Felicia, you've been a reporter here for several years.
1: Do you think situations like this are just going to keep becoming more common? Not, Not just talking about bear conflict, but talking about wildlife conflict generally. Like, of course, you know, you put more people in the same size of a landscape and inevitably there's going to be more interactions with wildlife and some of those interactions aren't going to be good ones. And so those are conflicts, right? And the frequency of those, uh, you know, inevitably is going to increase as you put more people in the landscape. And it's not like these are trivial increases in visitation we're seeing. With bear, with like these situations with celebrity bears, you know, to piece that out, I think a lot of what is leading to situations like Felicia and kind of the phenomenon around grizzly bear 399 is that just simply interest in these bears has skyrocketed. I, I think the, what happened in re- response to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service kind of rolling out their plan for Grizzly 863 is a great illustration of it. You know, there was an immense amount of what I, I'll just call like online activism, but, you know, people creating petitions, people creating... Uh, Facebook groups on her behalf, people creating Instagram pages on her behalf. Uh, uh, you know, all and probably a lot of people didn't know anything about her, but now they do. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's a feedback loop. And you know, maybe next year it would be even tougher to manage uh, Felicia if she continued to live right alongside uh, U.S. Highway. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for stopping by KHL and for talking about this important issue. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure.
0: just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked on KHOL. I'm news director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local and regional news, music, and culture. Jackson Unpacked airs Wednesdays at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. You can also now listen and subscribe to the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app. Coming up next... When we think of climate change, we often imagine hurricanes, forest fires, and other large-scale disruptions to our planet. But it's plants that are often on the front lines. Local botanist Trevor Bloom is working to understand how climate change is affecting wildflowers, and consequently, the birds, butterflies, and bears that rely on them for food. KHOL's Emily Cohen has the story.
6: Noting the Latin names of various wildflowers comes second nature for Trevor Bloom.
2: We're in the blacktail sage site, you know, persia tridentata, or that antelope bitterbrush, is in peak flower. We've got the hooded phlox, um, and the longleaf phlox are also flowering. Many of the potentillas are flowering. We've got a white potentilla and a yellow potentilla. Uh,
6: K. met Bloom at the Blacktail Butte trailhead, where he's been working with local volunteers teaching how to take scientific observations of plants. That is, making note of when they leap out, bloom, and bear fruit.
2: Yeah, I walk really slow. I think botanists walk slower than birders, even. (laughs) We stop and look at everything along the way and notice what's going on with the buds and the flowers. You know, if you come across a species you don't know, take a guidebook out and try to identify it.
6: Drawing on the field notes that the legendary biologist Frank Craig had made on this same trail in the 1970s and 80s, Bloom and his volunteers are comparing the life cycle events of the same species in the same locations today.
2: round trip is just under two miles. It's like 1.75 miles. And it's flat. It's before you go up in elevation at all. So it's accessible to all ages and most body types. So we've had people from four years old to 89 years old complete the trail.
6: Once collected, Bloom uses the citizen-scientist data to better understand how plants are responding to climate change, and also to inform when to collect seeds that will be used in restoration projects throughout the region.
2: The onset of flowering for spring wildflowers is on average 17 days earlier now than it was in the 1970s. And that is directly correlated with spring temperatures in March, April, and May having increased, and earlier snowmelt timing. The Timing of snowmelt in the valley has advanced by about 21 days since the 1970s.
6: And when plants flower earlier or at different times than they did historically, the impact on the wildlife that depend on them can be profound.
2: A classic example is the broad-tailed hummingbird. It's down in Central America, and then it makes its migration to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem when the day length gets longer. But the plants that they depend on, things like scarlet gilia and other wildflowers are flowering earlier. And what's been found, birds are arriving at the same time, and the flowers have already flowered earlier, um, resulting in reduced nesting success because they're not getting the nectar that they needed, which means that these animals need to adapt to this change in climate.
6: Another example that may hit even closer to home for Jackson Hole locals concerns grizzly bears. Research shows that bear-human conflict is directly correlated with how good a berry season is especially in late summer and early fall, when bears need to fill up before going into hibernation. When species flower earlier, they also fruit earlier, meaning that bears might have to seek alternative sources of food in the fall. And that's when the most conflict with humans happens. The Wyoming Wildflower Watch is one of dozens of citizen science projects around the country.
2: So all the data that we collect here in Teton County goes into an app called Nature's Notebook. And Nature's Notebook then gets uploaded to a cloud database that's managed by the USA National Phenological Network. And there are these phenology hikes all over the country, but we're really the only ones centered in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem.
6: Whether it's curiosity about wildflowers or concern about climate change, there are all sorts of reasons volunteers have signed up as citizen scientists with the Wildflower Watch. Kei met Noah Osnos at the first hike of the season on a windy day in June. He says that for him, citizen science is a way to slow down a bit and smell the proverbial flowers.
7: Most of us just walk around looking at the pavement or going to a restaurant or something like that. And you come out here and what is happening on the ground? So that's really why we came out was really just sort of just get a better idea of what's actually physically happening on the ground.
6: Even while we're living our busy lives, Osno says there's plenty going on in nature that we should be paying attention to. If wildflowers are something you want to pay more attention to, the next Wildflower Watch hike is scheduled for Sunday, July 11th from 2 to 4 p.m. More information can be found on the Wildflower Watch Facebook group. I'm Emily Cohen for listener-supported KHOL Jackson.
0: And our last story today, KHOL music director Jack Catlin interviews band leader John Kidwell of the local New Orleans-style jazz ensemble Jackson 6.
5: Described as a traditional jazz band with a modern twist, Jackson 6 recently released their latest album, *Lowjacked*, a collection of both original and traditional songs featuring numerous local musicians. Band leader and trombonist John Kidwell joins us now in the KHL studio. So you come from a musical family with both your father and your cousin being exemplary musicians in their own right. What was it like growing up in that environment?
7: You know, it's not just those guys. My dad was hugely influential on me, but uh, my brother is a jazz trombonist in uh, Edmond, Oklahoma and teaches at the University of Central Oklahoma. My sister is a clarinetist and sax player and plays in the Tulsa Symphony. And my grandfather, he had his own big band down in around Ada, Oklahoma, and kind of started the jazz scene back in the, I guess, the 20s, 1920s. And I mean, my whole family, I don't know if there's something in the water down there or what, but... My aunties and uncles all sang and we'd go down to my grandparents for Christmas and we're all there singing around the piano. And so it just was part of life, really, as I think it should be, but not for every family. So why the New Orleans style of jazz jazz? The real terminology, I think, would be traditional jazz because you can almost point to the date that uh, King Oliver and young Louis Armstrong came out with their recordings and their performances and they were creating new styles of music through old marches that they were now swinging and there's just some real earthiness to it and i love traditional jazz my father was my trombone teacher and he started a uh, there was a competition for college students to form a new orleans style trad band and submit songs And my dad, as the instructor there, said, oh, let's try that. And sure enough, that year, they made it to the finals, and they ended up winning the national competition. I was young, impressionable, 12 or 13-year-old, and I started listening to Louis Armstrong and Fats Waller and uh, Kid Ori, and I just loved it. I was kind of a nerd that way. Being a teenager, I could have probably gotten into any other kind of style of music, but when you really listen to that old
5: traditional Mm -hmm. jazz, it's great. So your last album, Hijacked, featured original songs by local musicians reimagined through the Jackson 6 filter. How important is it to you to embrace the local community and incorporate it into your music?
7: You know, uh, so many of our friends, uh, Aaron Davis and and all these guys at One Ton Pig and and Sneaky Pete and my friends that are bandmates or band members in, in other groups, I would go out and I'd hear them play or they'd let me sit in and... I loved that and to be honest I'd hear a tune of theirs that I liked and I thought oh why don't we just cover that or I would hear it and I'd think I could do that better (laughs) which is really probably not true but that's where that idea came from and the name Hijacked was just the play on words of we're hijacking their songs and maybe adding a tuba where there was a string bass and adding a clarinet or a soprano where there was none before and take a rock song and swing it make it more new orleans style and every single one of those guys was on board
5: your new album lojacked received a lot of helping hands from local musicians can you tell us about the concept of the record and how it came to be my first idea was maybe to have
7: just six songs and make an ep a shorter thing but then we started adding a tune or two and one was written or two were written by me and a couple were co-written uh and so instead of hijacking them from other people, it was a different concept. And I just was liking the jacked part, <laughs> hijacked, low jacked. Mm-hmm. And our, my third album is going to be cojacked.
5: We'll have to figure something out for that one. So you've shared the stage with several national and international acts like George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, Dirty Dozen Brass Band, Ozo Motley, and Motet. What from those experiences do you bring into the creative direction of your band, Jackson Six? It inspires a person to try to play their best. One
7: reason I had that opportunity to play with so many different big names and be on stage for a set or two or play a few times with them. Living in Lander for 10 years, the Lander Bar would have bands come through and... I just thought, huh, I'm sitting here in Lander, I'm a trombone player, I have nothing to lose. I might as well just go see if they'd let me sit in on a tune. And it just inspires you to try to perform well, and you just get that energy from the crowds that Parliament is playing. You know, George Clinton, oh my gosh, you get drunk on the idea of, oh yeah, George Clinton wants you to play, and he's calling you up. He's actually waving to call me up on stage, and he holds the microphone for me, and I think, oh my (laughs) gosh. The performers are usually very nice and very generous.
5: Hear Jackson 6 music right here on KHOL during our local music hour weekdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Make sure to visit 891 khlorg for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. That's it for today on Jackson
0: Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band, Strum Tune in for Jackson Unpacked every week, Wednesday mornings at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.